Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice, and joining us today is Haven Pell, who is the pontificator on his social media networks and on his blog. Today, we're going to engage in a little bit of political science fiction, and we thought that the topic would be interesting based on a couple of things that had taken place before. That would include the Wisconsin elections, which interestingly, there was a lot of debate as to whether they should even take place or whether they should be absentee ballots and whether people should be forced to vote in a social distancing environment. Additionally, Donald Trump, our president, talked a lot about the idea that he had total authority over the coronavirus response and possibly government in general, which raised a lot of alarm bells. And finally, we're seeing a lot of disparate treatment between different states and their response to the coronavirus. Florida is starting to open its beaches. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and other states were toying with the idea of a regional response to opening the economy, all of which beg the question that if we go forward and we have a situation where the response to the coronavirus is difficult and from a social distancing perspective, people don't feel safe. What happens in November if there is no vote or if there is the idea that the election could be postponed? What are the ramifications of that? And Haven and I will talk a little bit about what we think the technical issues are with that. But in a larger sense as well, what might happen if the election were to be either postponed or even potentially canceled, as has been suggested in some pieces, which we'll talk about. Haven, how are you? Well, I'm well, thanks. I'm not sure that endeavoring to deal with some of those dystopian topics is going to cheer people up, but I'm feeling quite cheerful today and glad to be with you and glad to have this conversation in the firm hope that none of it happens. For our listeners, I think we'll end up coming to the conclusion that a delay of the election is extremely unlikely. However, it's worth thinking about because the ramifications not only would keep constitutional lawyers up at night, but They have real-world implications. And so, Haven, as we think about it, on our different reading, we're trying to lay this out, and it gets complicated very quickly. But if Donald Trump were to try to delay the election on the grounds that it's not healthy or safe for people to vote in such an environment, which, again, is probably unlikely given the push to get the Wisconsin election through and, I'd say, Trump's not only willingness but definite desire to open the country back up from both, I think, from one good place to get the economy going again and from sort of a self-serving place for his own political benefit. What are we looking at here, do you think? I think back actually about 20 years ago to a woman who was my daughter's college advisor, absolutely wonderful woman. She had all kinds of terrific advice for these high school juniors and seniors who were about to head off to college. And one of them was there are three potential things that you can do at college. There are studies, there are sports, and there's social. And she said, you have to pick two of them because that's all that you can do. And so I, you know, it's stuck in my mind and it's been there for about 20 years, haven't really used it very much. But I suddenly began to think about today as World War III at a time. We have an epidemic that we need to deal with. 
we have an economy that we need to deal with, and we have an election that we need to deal with. And we're not necessarily wildly good at solving even one existential problem, let alone three at a time. So I began to think about what it might look like if over the course of the next, it's now just under 200 days, we had to actually solve those three problems at the same time and how we would do it and what it would look like. I think we've seen the idea that one could argue that shut everything down, the preciousness of human life, we can't be living with the kinds of infections and deaths and so forth, absolutely meaningful, reasonable, entirely fair. That is one goal, but it's a goal that is achieved at an economic cost that is substantial. And now the another side is coming back and saying, wait a minute, is the cost of trying to save lives in a pandemic going to cost us, even in terms of lives, not fooling around with trading human lives for the Dow Jones Industrials, which was some politician probably wrote that, but rather lives today, lives tomorrow. So looking at those things and then beginning to wonder, I think the point about Wisconsin was interesting. It was there were 17 elections, 17 various state elections that were scheduled at more or less that time. 16 of them were postponed. And Wisconsin went forward and was considerably criticized. So what happens in November and how do people get together to try to make decisions about what's going to happen in November? So that it sort of wends back to the idea of where are we in terms of the pandemic at that point? And as we try to, neither of us are virologists or have any particular expertise in that and beyond sort of reading widely and listening to different things on that front. But as of the taping of this podcast, New York thinks, Governor Cuomo, I think, is of the opinion that we've crossed the peak somewhat but that we're still in a danger zone. Other states are starting to escalate. Massachusetts, Florida are starting to get to their peak. Unclear where California is on things. And then the rest of the country is probably another at least week or two behind. And it'll be interesting to see as we go forward where we are on that. I still am of the opinion, and here I am in Manhattan, that with testing still in, we're still in the batter's box of the first inning, I think, as far as testing's concerned, or maybe just starting to get in the first inning. But as this becomes more and more prevalent, we're going to find that many, many more people have been exposed to this virus and that the sort of public understanding of where the pandemic fits within the continuum, I'd say, of public health issues, I think it's still to be defined. On one hand, you have sort of Ebola and high likelihood of death not particularly contagious because many people die before it can get spread. And then all the way back to sort of the common cold, which is everywhere, but not necessarily fatal. And what we're dealing with here is somewhere in the middle. And I don't think those boundaries have been discovered yet. And as I think sort of look and say, oh, there's 3 million plus people confirmed to have had a COVID diagnosis. I feel like it's more like 300 million people who have it. And we're not there yet in terms of sort of a public understanding of what that means. And then, you know, you sort of take that and say, okay, how does the 
usual independent person fit within those guidelines as this moves toward the broader context of where this fits in more toward the cold, maybe a much more dangerous flu type of scenario. We come off on that. Where do you think we sit on that continuum? And how does that relate to the other two points of your analysis, which is sort of the economic and political divide? I think one of the things that seems to be happening at the present time as people who hasn't looked at websites to see these curves bending in various different directions and different rates and doubling rates and all the things that we've all sort of had to learn about in the last month or relearn from calculus. And you see things appearing to behave as people began to say they would behave. And so I think we draw a lot of comfort. Oh, look, we were told two weeks ago that this was kind of what was going to happen. And look, it's sort of happening. Maybe it's happening at a lower mortality rate. Okay, excellent. That's good. But the curves are moving in the right direction. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting is the virus, I don't think, really cares very much about public opinion, although many others do. So what if those curves were to begin to become unpredictable again? And instead of bending nicely downward and we're passing our peak hospital occupancy and usage rates and so forth, now the curves start to bend back up again. And a period would go by that people would say, I don't know why this is happening. And I would forgive them for that. That's reasonable. It takes you a moment to look at what's going on and say, oh, okay, I think I've now got this figured out. So there would be a period of considerable insecurity that would come if the curve started to go in an unpredictable direction. The other thing that is interesting is that the response is highly dependent. The overall response, no matter how good or bad that response may be, and that's largely, to some degree, that depends upon one's politics, is that you Some people favor, oh, we're doing great. And some people say, oh, we're doing terrible. And they're looking at the same facts and seeing different things. But the thing that the response depends upon is an entity that can non-borrow money. In other words, an entity, the federal government, that can create money. And the states can't do that. Virtually all of the 50 states have in their constitution that their budgets have to be balanced And so they really have to jump through hoops to run deficits. And so we are now seeing, I guess it won't be in this next version of stimulus bills, but it'll be in the following one, that the federal government is going to have to come to the assistance of state and local government because they can't do what the federal government can do. They don't have a federal reserve that can monetize. So our choices of what to do, we're using some of them up. One of the things that I think, you know, to get back to your point about switching expectations on the curves and so on, I mean, that's a very real possibility. I mean, we're talking about having a mutated virus back in the fall. And as we go back to your three points of analysis with the pandemic, it's a very real thing to have your safety and health expectations severely disappointed, I think is something that tough to envision right now because we haven't even cleared up the pandemic the first time yet. But if the second wave hits, the possibility of a retrenchment and a ramification being an electoral delay could very well happen. And as we're 
sort of alluded to this already, but we've already got ramifications on the economic front. And we can only just have to look at the restaurant industry to see how that's working out and people's frustrations with the PPP and divergent treatment of different businesses for that. But if people start to feel disappointment, certainly in the safety and the health, public health perspective of this response, and then the economic component doesn't open up as quickly, those two points are going to fixate a lot of pressure on the political side of things. And you bet. that's where I see Donald Trump in particular looking forward and saying, I don't envy him on this front. He's got multiple moving targets that he's looking at, and he's trying to balance the public health component with the economic component. And all the governors of the 50 states are doing the same thing with differing degrees of magnitude on that. But I look at it and say, okay, well, if I'm Donald Trump and you know I'm sort of doing the best I can with what I have, I would sort of proffer that his public health response is not as robust or as focused as his economic response. And the economic response is to not only fire the bazooka, but also to launch the cruise missiles and the howitzers and send the aircraft carriers out to fix these types of things. So I think the possibility of that not working because there's a second wave of the virus or the economy doesn't snap back I think that's a very real possibility that he feels threatened politically and the nuclear option, as it were, would be to delay the election in November. And there are all sorts of reasons why that may make sense from a public health perspective, but there may be subtle political undertones to that kind of move. And the election, most people at this juncture in April, most people are focused on the, to the extent they're focused at all, are focused on the presidential election. But there's more to it than that. There are obviously 435 members of the House. There will be two candidates for each seat. That's 870 people running. 33 senators are up. Again, two candidates for each seat. That's 66 more. You get the president and vice president, the nominees. I think we probably know three of the four nominees. We may soon know the fourth one, the Democratic VP nominee. And so there's four more people. There are 11 governors who are up for election in November. So two candidates for each is 22. You get very close to 1,000 people running for those really major offices. You then have, I couldn't even figure out how to count them because there are also state legislative seats that are contested in November in virtually every state. I think maybe Virginia is one of the few that has a different schedule. But so you have all of those people up. And there's an interesting aspect to it. And the interesting aspect is election day is a law. And so that could theoretically be changed. The first Tuesday after the first Monday in November could theoretically be changed. The inauguration is not a law. That is in the Constitution. And the interesting aspect is not who comes into office on January 20, in the case of the president and vice president, January 3, in the case of the House and the Senate. The interesting aspect of it is who goes out of office. And the answer constitutionally is all of them. If you don't have an election, the people who are incumbent in the House of Representatives, they stop. They're over. There isn't anyone. The 33 senators who were up for election are nobody's elected. So you're now down to 67 senators. And the president and vice president, 
their terms expire. And you're supposed to have a president and a vice president on January 20th. And you very quickly, leaving aside the, well, this is if the election were to not happen. There would be no electoral college. There would be none of that. That would have been bypassed. And so you would suddenly end up with 67 senators making a decision. I mean, theoretically, they get to choose the vice president. But you have 67 senators who would be allowed to theoretically make that decision. And I think that there are some people, some Republicans might take some comfort in, oh, well, phew, at least it's the Senate. We control the Senate. Just a moment. Right. Just That's not quite so cut and dried. No, what happens is because there are more Republicans up for election, actually on January 4th, the Democrats would control the Senate. There would be 33 of them and 30 Republicans. Those would be the ones that are left. And I guess there's some independents in there, too. But those are the ones that are left. And it gets enormously complicated as to what happens. And depending on what would appear to be very tiny victories in very tactical decisions for one side or the other, the whole thing could swing. And one of the losses would be confidence in the system. Whichever side lost would blame their loss on rigging or things that didn't appear to be really part of the game in the beginning. No, I mean, the delegitimization of the process would create a massive confidence problem with the electorate. And that in and of itself would really give a real credence to the notion that we've really got to have an election in November come hell or high water. A friend of mine, Anthony Fisher, who writes for Business Insider, wrote an article about that and how there needs to be an advancement of the voting system such that we don't have the potential for this kind of delay because, as you said, it gets complicated very quickly. And the sort of the Senate gambit, and I feel like I'm talking about the movie War Games when at the end the computer goes through 10,000 different iterations of how thermonuclear war can destroy the world. But that the Senate gambit can lead the Senate pro tempore in charge, and that's Leahy from Vermont. There could be all sorts of different assaults as to whether or not the people decide to have their elections or not at the state level, and all sorts of gamesmanship, which would really create a huge devolution. By the way, I'll be linking Anthony's article and then another article from Vox Magazine, which goes through some of these iterations for those people who want to go down that rabbit hole and understand why we think it's important to keep the calendar in place, as it were. As we sort of look at the potential for chaos here, the concept of absentee ballots, Trump is against them. It's something that for one reason or another, he thinks and other Republicans, I guess, think that that disadvantages them from a get out the vote perspective and that there's delegitimizing concerns about fraud and other paper issues. And from the absentee ballot component, it seems to me that the world is moving toward that. We're not quite at retinal scans and blood samples and things where you can positively identify who you are and how to vote. But we are in a world where you can bank by your phone. I refinanced my mortgage via phone. Trusts and estates and marriages are happening on Zoom. And we're getting to a point where I feel like voting 
is going to go that way too. Just a quick aside, I remember back way, way back when I was working up in Albany, I was a poll watcher for an election and I showed up at I forgot what election it was for, but it was one of the significant ones. And there was a voting machine that had 500 votes on it that showed up. And I was there, a Republican representative, that was me. And then the Democratic guy who was there I said, well, this doesn't work. We have to call this in. And we did. And, you know, we had two TV vans show up and a bunch of people come by at the Department of Elections and, yeah, they'd throw the machine out. So I'm very sensitive to the notion of fraud and fooling around with the voting systems and having dead people vote in Chicago for JFK and those types of stories. But also, I think that we're getting to the point where the absentee voting component, I think that's got to be more a part of things. And technologically speaking, if this country decides they want to put some money toward it, I think we could have an even more robust democracy in many ways if we're able to engage on that front. It's very interesting. And there's very much a here to there problem. I don't think that any per any person who's involved in politics, if they were speaking honestly, would deny the existence of voter fraud. Now, it can operate both ways. It can be limiting people from voting. It can be adding people who shouldn't be voting or whatever. But it has a long history. A long pedigree, as it were. <laughs> yeah, it has a very long pedigree. And even in an imperfect world, we shouldn't be putting up with that. We should come to a decision as to which people should vote, whatever our laws are determined to be about who is an eligible voter. There should be a discussion about that. There should be an agreement about that. And off we go. The real challenge is that if you were trying to create a system, let's imagine that you or I or together we were trying to invent a game and we said, let's head out and try to invent this game. And let's try to make something that's really interesting, that's kind of evenly matched and so that people will enjoy watching it and it'll be a good thing and people will be entertained or people will enjoy playing. That's very difficult to do if you already know what your position is. And right or wrong, and there's some evidence that it's wrong, Republicans tend to believe that more voter turnout does not advantage them. Now, their political scientists are busily reporting studies that say that's not true, but it hasn't been absorbed into the psyche yet. So the Republican view is too many voters is not good for us. And you can easily see things like old people tend to vote for Republicans. Younger people tend to vote for Democrats. So imagine what happens if you say, well, how about if we vote online? Well, younger people are good at being online and they're facile and they jump into new programs and that's great. Older people are much slower adopters on that. And how do you suppose the Republicans will feel about that? I mean, you can easily see a divide on that subject. It strikes me that one of the public health ways to deal with this would be to say, to heck with election day, let's have election week. And if for whatever reason you say people have to show up at the polling place, why not give them a week to do so? And you could say A and B are going to appear on Monday morning or Tuesday. If you want to begin on Tuesday, that's fine. And they get four hours to vote and they can all stand six or 10 feet apart and they're going to be processed through. 
and the A and B people have then voted. And then you have another period of time and you simply stretch it out so that it's not too crowded and you do a better job of distancing the poll watchers as you were in Albany. You put up plexiglass shields, you do whatever you need to do, and you can have something that looks pretty consistent with what we've seen before. And the sacrifice is that the TV networks don't get to do the election night coverage because you really would have to do what they do for the West Coast, which is not to release results until the polls have closed. And that means that you hear from California at 11 o'clock at night. Well, you'd have to wait a week. If you decided to have election week instead of election day, then you might have those evening shows on Saturday night or Sunday night. I would imagine that actually be a pretty interesting thing for the political media industrial complex. And maybe not a week, but if you did two days, which I would argue, sure, probably, whatever it took. Let's say that's enough. But in many ways, it's sort of a mini lead up to the Super Bowl, or sort of like having to wait for the next episode of your reality TV show to unfold to see whether your favorite character got the rose or not. I guess the difficulty would be that these networks and the political consultants have very, I don't know if it's accurate exit polling, but by stretching it out, do you potentially limit or do you create avenues for sort of misinformation that could drive voter turnout down? My guess is or there probably is. Information. Right. For no, that's example, true. <laughs> let's take the District of Columbia, where I live, okay, where our jurisdiction is over 90% Democrats. And if you have the A and B people vote on Tuesday morning and the exit polling is accurate and they say, well, once again, the District of Columbia is going to be 90% Democrat. Then do people who are scheduled to vote on Thursday, do they even bother? Now, it may not change the outcome in terms of counting up the total number of votes, but what it would change would be the arguments if the Electoral College goes one way and if the popular vote goes a different way, what happens if the popular vote declines sharply at no cost to the electoral vote. In other words, let's say 30% of the people at the latter end of the alphabet in DC, they just don't show up. And those votes never get cast. Turnout turns out to be low because people already know what the outcome is and they say, what's the point? Now, if you want to make an argument that we won the popular vote, that doesn't work as well because a lot of the people in where votes are highly concentrated and you're going to win a state by 90%, they just don't bother. So what's going to happen if you say, okay, well, we can solve that problem by telling the networks not to report exit polling. Does anyone think there might be a free speech argument on that? I do. That's for sure. As we sort of look at the potential digitization of the voting process, We've already got some experience now with foreign countries fooling around with political advertising and the use of social media to distort messages, all of which I would say is probably an evolution of many well-worn strategies that have existed throughout political history. But without any data behind my musings here, I'm wondering whether there's a legitimization problem now with people who are on social media who don't trust that all 
70 million Instagram followers of Kim Kardashian are real people or not, or whether things can be doctored or messed around with from a running a magnet over a hard drive and making 10,000 people disappear in a very contested jurisdiction. I mean, part of that is technical, and I think there would be some overlap. I remember sort of when I was real interested in this topic, and especially in New York State, they were going headlong into going as digital as fast as they could, and they ended up having the paper uh, ballot be the control to make sure that people felt that fraud wasn't going to be a part of what's happening. And I think that's going to have to be a situation worked out, especially as more and more people come online and fewer and fewer stay offline. There's probably going to have to be a lot of redundancy, at least for, I'd say, half a generation where people should be able to feel good about going to the voting booth and punching out a chad or putting a piece of paper through a machine so that they feel that that's legitimately counted. Whereas the people who want to sit at home and check their bank balance and then play Scrabble and then half a second later vote for their various elections by checking a box, I think that's got to happen eventually. It's just that's where the world's going. Well, I mean, we are going through the census at the moment. And I don't know, a few weeks ago, I got an email that said, fill out your census form. And I sat at my computer and filled out my census form. And I didn't think for a moment about it. I told the truth about who lives in my house and how old we are and whatever questions they asked me, nothing particularly meaningful or nothing that upset me, and hit send and off it went. Candidly, if it weren't a constitutional requirement, I think we'd do a whole lot better figuring out who lives here by using modeling techniques than by asking everyone, but the Constitution says you have to ask everyone. And we would do that very well. And making it easier for people to vote, I mean, those who disfavor that idea do have the option. I mean, if we believe that the majority of people or some method of calculating that should determine who runs things, there is always the option of sort of changing the things that you stand for and being more appealing to different voters. I mean, that is a choice. Nobody's taking that one away from you. And if you say, well, gosh, if we still stand for X, Y, and Z, nobody's going to vote for us, so we have to cheat in the election. Well, you could change X, Y, and Z. You could say, oh, okay, nobody seems to want that, so we're not going to get away with it anymore, and now we'll compete on a different playing field. I mean, Lord knows, the political parties have traded positions. It looks like a double helix, how much the political parties have been on both sides of the same issue over our history. So that's not probably not too bad a thing. Well, as we start to think about sort of the end game here, and as we conclude our discussion, one thing I want to leave listeners with is the notion that the idea of delaying an election of the magnitude that we're dealing with here, you know, absent technological improvements or absentee balloting access improvements, I think it's very unlikely. The level of chaos that would ensue, again, Anthony Fisher talked about that eloquently in his article for Business Insider. I think that is an event that even a Donald Trump, to look at that, he would really risk running the political process up on the rocks and creating a level of havoc that I think even he would have trouble not only managing, but also not just managing, but really effectively operating in. And I mean, my hope is that even at some point, you know, the, the political process is larger than the people that we have participating in it. And that's what's helped serve this country so well for as long as it has. 
there's no question that the I was going to say the hardest core opponents to the president, but it's probably even more than that. I mean, it's probably a good chunk of the president's opponents would not put that past him, would not put the Sinclair Lewis book from the 1930s, It Can Happen Here, would not put that past him. But if you are a fan of what we have created and began creating in 1776, if you're a fan of that continuing, one might be an opponent of a more chaotic outcome. Here's hoping that that doesn't happen. I think we have a lot to feel good about with our system, even though it's under a great deal of stress right now. I think ultimately we're going to come out of the pandemic and the economic chaos that that's caused and ultimately the political chaos that we have been dealing with lately and that we're going to be, I think, stronger going forward. Hopefully a little technology and a little wherewithal and sort of an active approach from our government is going to help steer us through. In the meantime, Haven, thanks for the discussion. This was really fun to kind of let loose and let our minds sort of wander and think about this type of thing. At risk of doing something that I don't often do, let me just not take issue with, that's too much, but just draw attention to the phrase that you'd use before we leave this subject. My guess is we're going to have more conversations about this topic between now and November. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I can tell you that it is on sort of politically oriented websites like Politico, like 538, the ones that Real Clear Politics, concerns about the legitimacy of the election and how this is going to happen. And the people who do the academic work on elections, they are frantic about this. And I think we're very much at the beginning of the conversation on this topic, and people may roll their eyes as they listen to us today. I don't think they're going to be rolling their eyes in August and September. You're absolutely right on that front. As we were musing before, I'm hopeful that things are going to start loosening up as the summer wears on and we start to have a chance at a little bit more normal existence going forward. But if we get a second wave of the virus or a variety of other issues pop up or sort of foreign government issue, we could have real fireworks in November. All of that strikes me as absolutely true. And again, as I always do, thank you very much for including me in this podcast. I enjoy these conversations and thanks for being such a good host. Oh, not at all. Great to have you on, Haven. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.